Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Carly Israel about her bold new memoir, Seconds and Inches. In the opening sentence of her introduction, Israel writes, My last name, Israel, means one who wrestles with God, and wrestling is all I know. And that description gives us a sense of Israel's book. It's not a mere recollection, but a reckoning, one in which Israel wrestles not only with her own life, but also with the past she inherited, one full of intergenerational trauma as well as intergenerational gifts. Israel also writes for a future, one she hopes to make for herself and her young sons, one full of grace and gratitude. You have to find a gift in every hard thing. That's advice that Israel once received, and her book, in which she wrestles with the pain and grief and beauty of life, is her gift to us. Carly Israel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here today. And you have this new memoir, Seconds and Inches, and it's new, but the stories that go in it go back a long way. They go back even before you were born. I well wonder before. if you could tell us yeah, <laughs> something about the, the scope of this memoir, um, because it's, it's vast and it's rich. Um, and it's, it's different from the kind of memoir that, that one might be thinking of, like, here's a, just a chapter in my life, the right. story of a chapter in my life. This is a story of, of a family. It really is. Um, so first of all, I just want to thank you for the honor and privilege because I truly believe that everyone has a story and they all need to be heard. And the fact that I get to share mine right now is I'm humbled. Um, you're so right. This is a story of a family. I Right before I got on with you, I sent a text message to our family group, Gips Family Adults Only Group. Um, our family on my mother's side is extremely close. That's the side that um, was Holocaust survivors. And the reason why I sent them a text was I just got five documentations from Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, sent over to me this morning that no one in my family has ever seen. And um, what's so exciting about that that's going to lead into the question you just asked is once you start digging and giving permission to look, the stories go so much further back and deeper than you could imagine. The idea that there's just one story to tell is kind of myopic. And what I'm finding is I thought it was going to be one way. And then I'm finding family members that were in the Civil War and family members that I've never heard of and stories that no one ever even knew. So so tell us what it's like to get those documents. I mean, there are going to be a lot of listeners out there that don't have a familial tie to yes. something as, as grave and important as the Holocaust. Um, so here, you know, suddenly these messages come in and then you're alerting other people on Facebook 
this has yeah. got to change the way you think about your your life and what's possible. It is. So I feel like such a great responsibility. And to give a little background um, to anyone who is going to be reading the memoir or listening to it, my audio version of me reading it comes out soon, is I was, I was and am the black sheep of the family. I, um, my family, because of how hard they've worked and their opportunities have financially found success. And, you know, we came over with a carpenter who had no, literally no, nothing, nothing at all. My grandfather who survived the Holocaust. And I am the one in the family who financially is not necessarily in the same places they are. I've always made choices that are totally different from my family. I'm tattooed. I'm just the kind of the one that's always been marching to her own drum. And the fact that I've been able to kind of pull this off, I think is is making my family go, oh, she's kind of serious about life. And what I'm finding is I'm able to, because I'm willing to do that uncomfortable digging, I'm able to bring to light things that nobody knew. And not just from the Holocaust side. So what you'll find in my book is there are really intense, painful, beautiful stories about my family's Holocaust experience. But on my father's side, there are really intense, painful, beautiful experiences of a Holocaust they experienced in America. So it's just not one idea. It's so many. Can you, you just put together two adjectives that I think are at the heart of the book, right? Intense and painful. Like I could imagine people nodding, but then beautiful. Yeah. And right, like if if there's a lot of, your vision's very rich in this book and i think in the life that that it captures but but painful and beautiful tell us about that that is such i'm so glad you you caught that um i i give permission to the idea of painful and beautiful um what i experienced in my own personal life was so much pain and then from that and walking through it is so much beauty that I'm able to see as the gifts of continuing. And what I've seen and experienced from digging into my family's past is that same thing, which is why the title is called Seconds and Inches, because we all survive by seconds and inches. Our lives literally change by seconds and inches. And I love that idea. I don't know if you remember, it wasn't very popular, the movie um, Sliding Doors a couple decades ago. Sure. Remember that movie? With Gwyneth I think Paltrow. it's multiple Gwyneth Paltrow's. Yes, yes. And the idea that um, if you get on this train at this time versus this time, how different your life can be. And I see that. And I'm able to see that in my life. I'm able to see that in the life I tried to take, which was my own. I'm able to see that in my son's journey, who's got potentially fatal medical conditions. And then because of that experience that I've had and from watching my family, when my friends, like my neighbor down the street who I love dearly, finds out that her 13-year-old has like a really crappy form of cancer, I can say to her, this is going to suck and you're going to become so beautiful. And how, because you've experienced it. Because once you, once you get to the place where you have to look at what's important and what matters, all the other stuff that our society thinks is important and matters goes away. None of it matters. You don't, you literally don't care about any of it. And what you find is beauty and truth and connection. Um, you know, 
in our society, we only talk about all the horrible things that are happening. And unfortunately, they're not sharing the beautiful stories of communities coming together for each other. And that is what, you know, I live in a really great community and I will post on our community page like, hey, I found out that there's a foster family and they have seven kids and she has no clothes for them. And then my my front door will be covered in bags of clothes and I bring it to them and I bring my kids so they can see it because there is pain, right? There's pain of people struggling. And then if you tell people this is what's happening, they want to show up and then you see the beauty. Can we can we go back to the title? Because you, you yeah. just wonderfully kind of put out um, how we have the this kind of cultural preoccupation with like everything that's going so terribly. And, and certainly that's there. And, and what's getting buried in it is the beauty. And we certainly have another, maybe I'll just call it a myth that you can speak to, right? Like I can imagine some people being you know, thinking of that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, if they know it, or thinking of, of the way you've described seconds and inches and thinking, how, how can anybody live like, like the thought that if I turn this way or that way, yeah. or I, I make this connection or I don't. Um, and there's this American myth of self-reliance and yes. direction and I can choose my path and nothing will stop me. You know, your, your dreams are what you see when you never let anything get in the way, like that sort of stuff. Um, to be alive to seconds and inches, to suddenly recognize the fragility, like how do you, how do you negotiate or imagine that in your own life? And, and you're very invitational in your work. Like you, you not only kind of share your story, which is generous, but you invite others to learn from and with you. Yeah. And I'm just wondering about, you know, what does, what does life look like when you recognize seconds and inches rather than I am the captain of my own ship? Such a great question. So without giving too much of my story away, I had to be the captain of my own ship for many, many years um, as a child and as a young adult. And it nearly killed me. Like I ran into the iceberg. Um, and then through my own recovery, I had to create a partnership with a higher power that I call God, not in a religious way, just because it's an easier word. And I also refer to as like the universe, like the universe has a way. And, you know, when I would look back at history, like the Holocaust or my uncle getting brain cancer or what's happening in America right now to black people and all these horrible things, I would say, well, if it's really the universe or God, I can't believe in that God because that sucks. And what I came to through my son's journey is that the higher power or concept of a power universe that I need to believe in is one of a really good parent. And a really good parent would never want something bad to happen to their child. But when it happens, they're there to take care of them and support them. They can't protect, like no one can protect everybody. And so with that concept, I live with a duality of it is up to me to do the footwork and to get out there. So for, as a writer, it's my job to do the writing and the results are not my business. So when I was writing this book, the inner, um, Jen Pasteloff, who wrote the forward, who's like, I love her. She talks about the, her IA, her, am I allowed to swear on here? Yes. Oh, her inner asshole. And so <laughs> she talks about that voice that's judgy and criticizing. And when I would hear that voice, I would just say, I don't have time for you right now. We'll, we'll listen to you later. 
And if one person needs to read this story, awesome. But the real reason I'm writing it is for myself and to be able to hand it to my grandmother who's still alive. And so the idea of I live in seconds and inches, not in the way that I'm like, oh my God, what if I make this choice and then I miss this? Because that would be exhausting. I live with the evidence that I'm going to do what I believe is right in each moment. And I'm going to do my best given what's going on in my life. And I'm going to trust that the universe is going to have my back because it's never not had it. And I'm going to trust that what is supposed to be next will unfold that way. And if you look at my story, and if you look at your story or any of our stories, and you talk to people, you're like, how did that happen? Like how, like my husband, he could have, if he would have gotten on Facebook and scrolled through Facebook one minute later, he would have never seen the documentary that I was in that caught his eye. So it's like, you just, you can't live like that. But the understanding is that it's not on us. Like, I just want to say this one thing, and then I promise I'll let you talk is um, there's an amazing story that I would love for you to read if you've never read it. And it's called like Miracles and Fate on 78. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard of it. So I've actually had the author in front of my face. He um, not, is so, so prevalent. So 9-11, right? We just had the anniversary and like no one even talked about it. Mm-hmm. And he was um, supposed to be on whatever the name of the floor is where all of the whole, the whole company was killed. Um, I don't know the name of it, but it was like the biggest company that was taken out during 9-11. And his family, he had like five kids and he was supposed to be at his desk on like the 105th floor at the time of the plane crashing. And his son never filled out his like book choice for like, you know, those expensive books you have to buy at school when the kids want to bring home like a book magazine where mm-hmm. they have to like shoot like a scholar, or whatever, you know, you get to choose like a really cool book. And his wife was like, you said you were going to fill that out with him last night. And he was late for work and he stayed home for a few minutes to fill it out. And he missed the train and he did not get into the building until the plane hit the building. And he was on the 78th floor when the plane hit the building instead of the 105th floor. And he, and so he was, that's the floor where like the fire went through the elevator and he writes his story and I've heard him speak about it. And he talked about how he didn't, if he didn't fill out that book report, he'd be dead. And you, it's just amazing when you look at those kind of things. Just the sheer, yeah, the sheer possibility. Yeah. Well, I just want to, you know, reassure you that the people are here to talk and listen to you, um, not to me. So I'm very happy with the stories that you want to tell and the ones you want to share. Um, I want to go back to to a moment that you talked about and just a second ago, which is, you know, how then you do move forward. What are your guiding principles, um, even to bring this book into existence? And you mentioned, you know, what's going to be your North Star. Yes. So that's one of those tattoos that if yeah. you look down on your own forearm, you see it every day. Yeah. Um, it's also the name of both of the podcasts that you do. Yeah. So readers are going to see it on the cover of this book because you're on the cover. Yes. Um, and and if they are listening to your podcast, they're going to see that as the the title under which all the work comes. So could you yeah. tell us about this North Star? I would love um, to. Yes. Yeah, because that that would be right the answer, right? You can't live thinking, right? If I wait as long as it takes to fill out this form, 
life's going to be one way or another. That would be yes. crazy making. But you can say, here's my North Star. I'll make my decisions knowing that as I make it, the decisions in light of this, there are going to be seconds and inches that change the way my life's going to unfold. Yes. I love that question. So with that, with that information, I'm going to tell you this. I know for a fact there's two things that my the, the guidance inside of me wants me to be, and it's to be kind and useful. So with that being said, the North Star, um, I found out this concept by one of my best friends, my soul brother, Scott Simon, who said to me, I came to his couch again. I've never met him before in my life. And I had a voice inside of me that told me I needed to talk to him. And we spent hours talking on his couch one night. And it was towards the end of my marriage. And I told him I'm lost and I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to figure out how to go from here. But I don't want to have a bad story of divorce for my kids or for myself. And he said, there's a concept of the North Star that he created in order to understand how to move forward for himself. And he said that sailors, when they're lost in the dark and they cannot find their way home, they look up to the North Star. And then once they identify where the North Star is, they can find home in relation to that. And that I would need to have my children as my North Star. And that all decisions I would make moving forward would be based on the question, what is going to be best for them? And then I don't have to worry about the seconds and inches. I only have to focus on what is going to be best for them. I make decisions based on that. And then I can look back and see how, because I focus on what was truly important, everything ended up falling into place the way it needed to, not, not the way I wanted it to, but the way it needed to. So can you tell us a little bit more about your your life as a mother and your relationship to your children. And I'll, I'll put it in the frame of the book. We've talked about how your memoir reaches into the past, into the stories of your, your ancestors yeah. and your grandparents. But the book also moves forward into the lives of your children and the lives of your mothers. And, you know, and the, the cover has three eggs in a nest. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's... Uh, Levi and Franklin and Elijah, who are yeah. your boys. Um, and the, you know, this isn't going to give anything away about the book, but it ends with messages to them. Yeah. Um, so, so could you tell us a little bit about how the story moves forward since we've had a chance to talk a little bit about how it moves back? Yeah. And also, I don't know if you're able to see this um, on that cover in that nest, one of the eggs has a crack in it. Um, and the crack is one of my children who changed my entire life. And actually this cover, I saw this cover when I was on a run one day. And I literally saw this exact cover exactly the way it is. And I called my publisher and I was like, I have to have it like this. And she's like, we don't normally let authors tell us what to do. And I'm like, I know, but this is what it needs to look like. Um, so my three so you boys, had a vision. I literally saw this exact cover. The forest yeah. is where my grandfather was. The arms holding is the most precious thing in the world. All those tattoos on my arms are all of the lessons I've learned. Um, you know, I always joke, like I'm like memento where you, you forget something. So you have to write it down on your arm to remember. Um, and I don't know if you're able to see, but upside down, those numbers under to thine own self are the coordinates to Treblinka, which is where a lot of my family was murdered. Mm -hmm. And so the North Star is there because I need the reminder that they are the most important thing in my life. And um, so my three boys are, we are a, a wild pack. Um, the four of us live together 
and we are inappropriate and silly and honest. Um, we mess up all the time. I mess up all the time. There's a lot of swearing. Um, but they also know that the highest value I have and hold for them is how they treat others, that I care more about that than I do their grades. Um, and obviously I care about their grades, but I would well rather they were kind to someone who was being made fun of than got an A. Um, and we live this really honest, authentic life um, in our new world as a single family. Their father lives four blocks away on purpose because of the North Star. And the house we lived in before we split up was gorgeous. I literally designed it by hand. I, I also saw that in my mind and I, I helped the um, architect create the blueprint and it was perfect, but it was on the inside, it was so broken. And so today we live in this, this world that we've created with poems and writing and collages and penises on mirrors and <laughs> everything. <laughs> um, and it's a life that I am more proud of than anything. Um, and it's a mess. It's a beautiful mess, but they are, they are my reason. They're my North star. So, so one of the things that, that of course comes out in the book, um, let me take a step back. So one of the, the facets of the book that threads through it is that you are writing letters to people. Yes. Um, that it's, it's alternating between that and kind of snapshots of your life, vignettes of your life. Um, and some of the letters are from those people in your past that maybe to, to use that idea of the inner asshole, right? Like who puts that voice in your head, right? It right. can be the, the bad teachers, the bullies, and of course the parents, right? Like that voice, um, that goes on inside your head that we all grow up with. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, you just described this kind of beautiful vision of, of parenting where the things that, that don't matter don't and the things that do matter do. Um, so how was your experience of writing back to those figures in your life um, formative in terms of thinking about, you know, who your kids are going to be and the voice that you're going to be for them. I'm just wondering if there was a discovery process in having to address those bullies in your past, those bad teachers, you know, yes, the, your own I, parents. I have it open to that. So for, I'm going to answer the question and then I want to read that one. Um, That'd be great. So just to give a little background to listeners, I love doing challenges to myself to make myself grow and stretch. Cause I truly believe that if you're not, like, I love the spiritual concept of, like, let's say you have a third grade student that's your child, and the teacher called you and they're like, oh my God, Eric, your third grader is reading at a first grade level. You would freak out. You would hire interventional specialists. They would get an IEP. You would get a tutor. You would be doing check-ins. And then in fourth grade, they're like, up oh, still first grade level. In fifth grade, oh, now they're at a second grade level. You would, you would be on high alert and it would be like an emergency. But as adults, we never check our levels. We never say like, am I progressing? That's and, great. Right? So my job for myself is to make sure I'm spiritually progressing and growing and becoming. So one of the tasks I, I took on was I heard um, a story about someone who wrote a letter to uh, a person in their life that made their life brighter every single day for a year. And I love the concept of 
consistency, you know, because inside I'm also an athlete. And so I truly believe like in consistency and training and showing up even when it's crap and it helps with my writing. And so I was like, I'm going to do that, but I know I'm not going to be able to write a letter because that'll never happen. But I can post something every day on my little phone. And so in the beginning, it was all to the people I loved. I just want to thank you. And then I changed the um, definition of what brighter meant. And it meant for me, like, um, like I could shine a light on things that taught me lessons. And I started writing letters to people in my life that helped me change the way I look at life. And I want to read one of them right now. Um, And what ended up happening was those were the posts that people were most drawn to. And I cannot tell you how often we discuss it in my house, that how you treat others matters more than anything. And that I'm 41. And I still see people from high school. And my first thought is she was nice or she was a bitch. My, My first thought, 20 plus years later. And so I always tell my kids that. And so I want to read if it's okay with you, this letter to my AP physics teacher. Yeah, that sounds great. I learned one of the most valuable lessons in all of high school in your class. I still remember what it felt like when you humiliated me, and it helps me be the teacher, mother, friend, and human I am today. I didn't end up in AP physics by mistake. I was doing well in AP calculus, and the guidance counselor thought it made sense for me to try your class. Science was never my strongest subject. When I'd raise my hand in your class, you would not hide your annoyance. You'd say, oh, look, Carly has another question. You joked, let me guess. Carly doesn't understand what I just explained. I was your favorite play toy in class, and everyone laughed except for me. I endured you the entire year. I barely got by with a C. I was stressed and confused and hated going to your class each day. And when it was all over... You were packing up your class for the summer and I was getting ready to graduate. I came into your classroom and told you that I would never enjoy science because of you. I said it calmly and you tried to backpedal, but it was too late. The damage had been done and the lesson had solidified. When I became a teacher and a mother myself, I knew that I would never make a student or subordinate who knew less than me feel how you made me feel. Thank you for that gift. Not all of the gifts we get from the universe come with a bow, but I believe your gift will help so many more people than you could have ever reached yourself. And um, I actually had a fellow classmate reach out to me privately and she acknowledged that everything I said in that post was real and that she felt horrible because she was probably one of the students that laughed nervously along with the others and that she did not realize how horrible I felt every day and that what what I experienced was real. And I think that's like one of the coolest things is when someone acknowledges that what you experience is real. I want to point out something that it's about your work. It's about the work in the, the memoir. It's about the, the work that you've done um, through the Huffington post. It's the work you're doing in your podcast. And I'm going to, I'm going to go to it through contrast. So I do talk to a lot of writers and the conversations are about aesthetics and craft and form and beauty and, you know, adding to the tradition of the novel or reinventing it or something like that. Um, and, and what is so, and, and in your book, there's moments of beauty and craft and, and all of these things, but you really are interested in connecting with the readers, with connecting with people, with 
looping that back into your work um, with having your work matter to the people who encounter it and, you know, I think affect change, um, ripple outward. And it's a, it's really rooted in this sense of deep communication and that the reader matters. Um, you know, and that's, that's not a sensibility that always appears. Um, often one is the work is first, right. Or something like that. Can you, Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you talked about ticking away on your phone. And if I remember rightly, there's a story that that's kind of how your your public authorship began. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, so full disclosure, I have my master's in education in middle school, high school English. I went to school to study theater and I did playwriting, which is where I fell in love with writing through like the best professor on earth, Vincent Cardinal and his play. And he taught me a lot about writing. And what I want to share with everyone is I am horrible at grammar. Um, One of my biggest fears and insecurities when I was an English teacher was I do not, I was never taught like how to break apart a sentence properly. Um, And when I write, it's very much like I'm talking to you, which is how I, that's what works for me. Like that's the writing that I love. And for a long time, I just wouldn't share my writing because I was embarrassed that it was not going to be grammatically correct. And I started sentences with and, and I used commas all over the place. And what I finally decided was like, who cares? Like, who cares? <laughs> right. And if someone's connecting, because I'm getting all these humans, real humans that are like, your words hit me and made me do this differently. And like you just said, like, what matters more? Right. I'm not going to be in any classic you know, canon. But what I'm, what I, my goal is, is to give other people permission to be real and to honor when they messed up and to point out when someone's doing amazing things and like to highlight, like, you know, like that starfish story, you know, the Mm -hmm. starfish story. Yeah. Like that, like it matters to this one. And Elle, who is my publisher, when she reached out and she's so well read, she like reads like a hundred books a day. I mean, not really, but it feels like that. And she, you know, when she first asked me to do this, I was so insecure because I'm not, I'm not as, you know, I don't write the way that you're talking about. And, but what she was identifying was she's like, people are connecting with what you're saying and how you're delivering it. And I don't know. I just, I feel like that is more important. Like you just said, Um, and that's what editors are for. (laughs) Well, and, and I, you know, and I'm somebody who's, you know, working a faculty member in a PhD program in a creative writing. And my alma mater. (laughs) Yes, your alma mater. And I can't, my alma mater too. And I, I can't tell you the number of young writers who feel that inner asshole telling them, you can't do it. You can't say it. You can't, you yes. know, you, you like science fiction. You don't like James Joyce and, right. and the amount of kind of un, you know, excavating the inner asshole and getting it out of their way just so that they can make messes and fail and write the kinds of stuff that their voice is telling them to write. Um, yes. And you know what else? Like the people that I love the most, like the authors that I was the most drawn to, they wrote just like I talk and just like I write. And so I was like, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And these are big writers. So when I would read and listen to their words, I was like, well, I'm allowed to write like that then. And whoever's going to 
connect to it, we'll connect to it. And whoever won't, won't. Like, not everything's for everyone. Like, I don't like country music, right? So, like, every... But there's a lot of people that do. So, you know, the people that we're going to connect, we're going to connect. And it's all about share using your voice in the written word or in, like, when I have podcast to give other people permission to, like, you only get this one road. Like, this is the... This is the one of the quotes in the front of my book is by Buddha. And I have it on my mantle. And it just says, the trouble is you think you have time. And which kind of goes back to seconds and inches. Like, why do we think that we have enough time to do our dreams later? So yeah, there's, there's a story that Martin Prechtel um, tells about uh, one of his indigenous American friends. And he's talking to some Westerners, this person. And, and he says, it's a strange place you all come from. And, you know, None of the Westerners can deny that. Um, and they kind of wait and he says, you all wake up every day thinking you're going to live. Mm. It's true. And we don't even think about it. I mean, how many days that go by that we don't even think about it? And then life knocks on your door because it will. It's not possible to not have it knock on your door. And then you're like, holy crap, which is where we go back to the beauty and the pain. So we only see the beauty of our lives when we've already, when we've touched that pain and come so close to it, which is why I think one of my blessings is that I did not get what I wanted on the bathroom floor in Athens, Ohio. And because I did not get what I wanted, everything after that is bonus. But because I'm human, I forget. And my friends call me Dory from like Finding Nemo (laughs) because I literally forget all day long. I'll be like, oh, but what about this? And how about this? And oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? And then the universe calms me down and I take a deep breath and I come back to now and I go, but this is all there is. So it's kind of like back and forth. So I want to ask a a big question, but it's come up a couple of times. (laughs) Okay. So, so here's the big question, right? Um, So you've used something like the guidance inside of me and God, but you don't mean that. And the universe, as you just did right there. I mean, I think that that a lot of listeners out there are hungry for people to speak to an experience that's spiritual, that's not just material, yes. that's not just, you know, cognitive and rational. I would love um, to. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that this is an animating force in the, the book itself. It's an animating force in the work that you're doing. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Because you, when you brought it up, you've also kind of put it under a razor, like God, but not God, right? Or yes. I call it the universe or the guidance inside of me, which doesn't feel like it quite has a reference. So what is this sense um, that you're talking about? Eric, I could talk to you all day. Um, so because I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm 21 years sober, when I work with women, I my go to is to make it very, very clear to them that I'm not talking about whatever God they grew up with, that they might be so damaged by what they were taught that they can't hear my words. So I'm very, very careful about not using words that are going to make people not be able to listen. And then I use that interchangeably in my life. So like I said before, I call it God. Like that's what I call the power within me, the voice within me. When I explained to my little boys what God was, I said that God was inside of all of us and that it's an inner voice. So, you know, you have the inner asshole, like John Pasloff says, Mm -hmm. 
there's the inner soul voice. And the best way it was explained to me was by a woman. And she said this to an audience. She said, raise your hands if you hear a voice within you, voices within you. And so half of us raised our hand. And then she said, for the, those who did not raise their hand, did you just hear a voice in your head that said, I don't hear a voice? And then everyone laughed because they did. And she explained that there's two main voices in our head. And I actually used to call them names when I first got sober. I called them Echo and Lulu. And um, because I didn't know how to explain to anyone like what was happening, but now I understand it. So the main voices are this. There's my like my head voice, like my Carly voice, like my the inner asshole kind of like what what I need right now, like the person. And then there's my soul voice, my God voice, whatever word makes you less uncomfortable. And so the way she explained the example and that I share with other people is let's say you set your alarm for 6am to wake up and meditate and work out. And the alarm goes off. And the first voice you hear is, Oh, I do not want to get up. I'm so tired. I want to go to sleep. Okay. And then you hear another voice that says, Carly, you said you were going to work out and meditate. You need to get up. And then the voice goes, no, I'm so tired. I'll do it later. And then the voice goes, you know, you're not going to do it later. You'll be too tired. The way to tell the difference between the two voices is twofold. One is the head voice, like the Carly voice, the person voice is I. It's always about what I want. I, I, I. And then the soul God voice is you. And the way I can always figure out who is who is the I voice, the Carly, the now, the human voice wants what is best for me in this moment. I want to sleep. I want to eat. I want to call him. I want to text her. The God soul voice wants what's best for me in the big picture. And it wants like a, like a parent wants what's best for you. And one of the cool exercises I do with my clients is I say to them, either write it out on a piece of paper, like in a journal or text it back because you could text yourself. Text yourself back and forth of the conversation. You can make all of your decisions like that. You can actually see, I don't want to go out with her. You said, you know, you should give it a try. Like you can see it back and forth. Mm-hmm. And the truth is we have all of our answers within. We just don't listen. And when I was going through the hardest decision of my entire life, which was to stay or leave my marriage, I struggled more than I've ever struggled in my life. But there was a special mirror in the bathroom at my work. And um, I would be tortured for months. And I would go to the bathroom at work and I would look in that mirror and I would say, Carly, gun to your head, you know what to do. And I always knew. But we don't want to like honor that because we're scared. And so that the reason why I say, you know, universe or God or all of that is because I don't want to turn my audience off based on old, you know, whatever, whatever they had growing up. I know a lot of people have had really yucky things about their God. But what for me, God is, is that voice that wants what's best for me, that believes in me, that is always guiding me, and that needs me to connect and communicate. And the way as a writer, I I found that voice was it was just me and the page. And that is where I started that relationship was with me and my God and me and the universe was writing on that page just for the two of us. And from that is where I found all of my inner voice, like truth. 
I was going to ask you about the the relationship between the voices in your head and the voice on your page, um, and that's that's just a beautiful way to bring that answer to culmination. Thank you for it. Can I share something with you? Yes, of course. Okay, I want to find this because this is such a great example. Okay, um, it's a few pages. Is it okay if I read it to you? Please do. Okay, awesome. So it's called Chapter 29, God in a Backpack. I was exhausted from school, meetings, and working as a waitress, and I hungered for an adventure. In my overfilled day planner, I had this chunk of time in big letters. I scribbled, go somewhere with an exclamation mark. After much planning and lots of God putting opportunities in my path, I had tickets to Germany and then Israel. I wanted a retreat from my regular world, like people I'd only read about. I wanted to lose myself to find myself. I was ready. My mom supported me because she knew I had to go out into the world, but my dad did not. He was constantly cutting out articles about the unrest in Israel and how dangerous it was. I responded, Dad, I've got God. I'm all good. He rolled his eyes as I marched off to borrow his hiking backpack for my trip. The Sabaro pizza, pizzeria bombing in the middle of Tel Aviv, right where I planned on staying, was all over the news. And my response was, if you only watch the news, everywhere is unsafe. I was not afraid. I had just sat at the bedside of a good friend's mother, Alice, and watched her in her last days. Watching Alice die opened up a part of my heart I had long ago closed off. The course I had taken on death and dying made it so I could look death in the face and see it as a natural part of living. I wanted to get out there and live without fearing death. This trip would be my chance. Even still, there was this quiet thought within me that I did not admit to anyone. I could hear it only faintly say, if you go to Israel, you will not come back. It wasn't a feeling that I would love it so much that I would move there. It was a feeling that if I went there on this specific trip at this specific time, I would not be able to return. I had no planned place to stay, no friends there, and no idea how I would get from city to city. This unplanned aspect really excited me. It made me feel independent and empowered. My mom drove me to the airport. She hugged me goodbye with tears in her eyes, handed me a thick envelope and said, do not open this until you're on the plane. I remember the other thick envelope she gave me in the parking lot at OU. She always gave me such beautiful cards. Carly, I want you to promise me that if it gets too dangerous in Israel, that you will leave immediately and head to Europe. I will. I looked down when I said it. I mean it. I promise me. She lifted my chin and stared into my eyes. I promise. I had a flash forward then. I hoped I would be the kind of mother she was, one who would let her children go and explore even when she was afraid. We both had faith in God, and that faith is what allowed her to let me go. I packed the following in my extra heavy hiking bag, a new day pack, a bunch of really lightweight clothes for the notoriously hot Israel weather, Eden Express by Mark Vonnegut, a Lonely Planet guidebook, my journal, and four Luna bars, a still really poor self-image despite my hard-won sobriety, a lot of self-hatred, a noisy mind, and a super tight yet new relationship with God. On that trip, I was completely alone with no one to talk to. I had endless conversations with myself and started to enjoy my own company. Back in Athens, being alone had been pure hell. It had taken so much inside work to get to a place where being alone wasn't drowning in isolation, but basking in solitude. As I traveled, the bombings in Israel continued, and the news coverage kept finding me. To call myself, I wrote out conversations with God in my journal. I wrote, 
Is this safe? Will I make it back out? God wrote, you're more than safe. This trip is your opportunity for us to be together. Just you and me. We can talk and listen all day long. I can ask, answer questions you are ready to untangle. I will put people in your path to help you figure out your way. You are ready. Enjoy it. But as I got closer, I was afraid. From Germany, I called my dad. He was frantic. Carly. The United States just released a statement that travelers should not go to Israel at this time. I assured him I would find out more before I went. I asked God to guide me. I asked women who were in line for a flight to Israel if it was safe to go. One woman said, only Elat is safe now. This was the only part of Israel that had that was nothing like Israel. It was touristy and hot, 120 degrees. It wasn't my first choice, but to minimize the risk to my life, that's where I headed. On my flight to Israel, I opened up my mother's card. Written on the inside of the card was, fear not, for I am with you. She ended with, I love you, I am with you, and I respect you. My mom had never even sat in a restaurant alone. I was more like my grandmother's in this way than like my mom. And I I suspected that her respect for me was an extension of her respect for them. A 12-year-old Israeli girl named Naomi sat next to me. I returned to her with my Lonely Planet map open and asked, where is safe to go? Her parents sat in front of us and they turned to see who was talking to their child. I smiled at them and pulled my Star of David necklace out from under my shirt so they would know I was safe. I pointed to each major city on the map and as my fingertip covered many square miles, she shook her head, not safe. We spoke mainly in nouns. Naomi whispered, no bus, no coffee, no pizza, no beaches, no taxi, no city. I had no plans and nowhere to stay, and every alarm inside me was going off. That warning thought in the back of my mind started getting louder and moving forward. You will not be returning from this trip. And that warning was absolutely right. I would not be returning from that trip. I just didn't understand what that meant at the time. Removing all that crap from my hallway reaped real benefits. I heard a voice inside that guided me, just like when I lay dying on that bathroom floor. God's voice told me that something was wrong. The plane landed at 4.40 a.m. We unloaded onto the tarmac and loaded into a bus that sent us trembling on the terminal. The air in Tel Aviv was thick and dark. I hadn't slept in a bed in two days. I hadn't eaten a meal since I was in Cleveland. I tried asking more questions, but people in the airport refused to talk to me. No one trusted anyone. The feeling in the air was frenetic and blaring. I heard Israeli accented English and Hebrew and Yiddish, but couldn't understand any of it. When the beautiful and dark Israeli customs agent asked for my passport, I handed it to her looking like a terrified puppy. She asked me the same questions the agents in Germany asked me. Where are you staying in Israel? I don't know. Who do you know in Israel? No one. What do you plan on doing in Israel? I don't know. Why are you here in Israel? This last question brought the sorrow unexpected. If I opened up my mouth to speak again, to say again the words, I don't know, I would wail. I clamped my mouth closed and bolstered the emotional dam, holding the tears back, unwilling to openly weep at her. There was a long, silent moment between us, and then she gave me my passport and waved me through. I staggered through into Israel. I'm going to stop there because the chapter keeps going, and I don't want to give it all away. It's, it's, it's a powerful story. And first, I want to say thank you for it. And I also... I think I want to honor it um, as I'm mindful of the time and just let that resonate with listeners, because I think that's 
that's going to draw people in. That's going to let them know about the voice on the page. And and before we we go, I do want to alert people and ask you about a different dimension of your voice, which is you yourself are are a podcaster. So yes. there's also a different way that people can encounter your voice. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing there? I would love to. So um, I have two podcasts. One is just a sobriety-based podcast called North Star Big Book. It's available everywhere. I just got notification that there's 25,000 downloads now, which for someone who recorded it in her car while her kids were at karate is pretty cool. Um, and that's really just going to be for people that are in sobriety because it would be boring otherwise. But there's lots of people in sobriety. Um, and then the one I'm most excited about right now is called In Your Corner Divorce. And that's also available Apple, Spotify, everywhere else. In Your Corner Divorce is my new baby because I finally figured out what I want to do when I grow up. And besides writing and speaking, so a long time ago, I went to um, New Orleans and I was actually doing research for a show I was going to do in theater. And um, this he like palm reader, I went with a guy. She said, she said these four things to me. She whispered out of the side of her mouth, that guy you're not going to end up with. And I was like, I know. Um, and then the three things she said to me was, you're going to be a speaker, a teacher, and you're going to write a book. And I was like, wow. And I was like 19, 20. Um, and I've become all those things. But what I'm really excited about was I finally figured out what I want to do with my life. And it's through the beauty and the pain. I have decided and I've gotten certification and I've begun. I'm going to, I'm a divorce coach, an executive relationship and divorce coach. And what that means is uh, I take clients, preferably both um, parties that are in a relationship, in a marriage that have children. Um, that's like ideal unicorn idea, but not always. Um, it's usually one person that is terrified of messing up their children from their divorce. And I basically take them through a super hard boot camp of let's get rid of all the crap in your hallway so you can become the human and parent and co-parent you want to be. And so my new podcast, In Your Corner Divorce podcast, is basically it's it's awesome. I get to interview divorcees who share their story. And we get to look at like their story of where things went wrong and the red flags and like how things ended up happening and then the successes of co-parenting and, and the failures. And then I also interview lots of professionals because the whole goal is, here's the deal. Nobody wants to acknowledge this because when you're getting married, you want to only think about forever. But 50% of, of marriages in America end in divorce and no one wants to talk about it. And right. my right, my job is to help those who have to go through a divorce for whatever reason, whether it was their choice or not, to do it in a way that is dignified, respectful, and does not further harm their children emotionally. I cannot tell you how this is going to actually change the universe. Because if you think of the ripples, if you have, like, let's say you were in a marriage and you and your wife or husband decided that you couldn't stay together anymore for whatever reason, you have children and you don't know how to do this. My job as a coach, whether you are pre-divorce, currently in the divorce process or post, is to help you identify what's still blocking you, what stories you're still telling, what anger and fear and, and resentment you have, and what you need to let go of. And then I do some really cool like work exercises that you have to do in order to get to a place where you can find freedom. And then 
we find out what you want to do next. And I only have two rules with my clients. Um, do you want to know what the rules are? I do. Okay. Um, one rule is you are not allowed to say anything negative about the other parent ever, ever, ever in front of your children. And if you hear someone saying it in their earshot, you shut that down. Because I've heard that that is, that is almost the same as child abuse when you say anything negative about someone else's parent. And then that one is usually tolerated. The one that's not tolerated, it's like I'm asking people to give up carbs, mm -hmm. is I tell them, let's pretend there's not COVID, that when you're at a concert or an activity or a sporting event for your kid, you sit in the same section as your co-parent. And they're like, no. And I'm like, yes. Um, your kid, when they're hitting that ball and they get a run to first base, only has about one second to look up. And they do not have to look in two different places to find you guys because you're so selfish, you can't sit in the same space. And so it's all about like getting rid of your crap so you can give your children what they need. And then that ripples out to how the children end up growing up to be adults in relationships, how they choose partners, how they parent, because I can't tell you how many letters I've had from adult children that were in divorces that were not like that, that have harmed them and so many people around them. Well, I would, I would want to observe, I mean, one, I can imagine the moment that you said divorce coach, people were like, wait, what? That exists? Um, which is, is, I think highlights what you're talking about, which is, you know, we have 50 or over 50% of marriages ending in divorce and nobody wants to talk about it. So if, if you're not sure how the work you're doing is going to ripple out, I think we all have a pretty good sense of how the culture of silence and fear around talking about it is rippling out and doing damage. And so yeah. just the clarity and transparency and courage to say, let's start a forum where we can begin to talk about this and to try together to see what might help our children from inheriting the same sort of damage. Um, that seems like a beautiful thing. I mean, my grandmother who was in the Holocaust, right? So she's in my book, told me when I told her about my divorce, she was so, she, had, she gave me like buckets of graciousness. And she just said to me, you know, my story, Carly, and the worst story of my whole life is growing up in a relationship in a family, her parents hated each other. And being in a family where they hated each other, they got divorced when she, they were all adults. And she could not sit at a holiday dinner at one of their houses without them making her miserable about when she was leaving to go to the other house and how damaging that is as an adult. And she said that I could never do that to my children. And so I went about seeking out how can I do this differently? And what I found out is that the people, let's just put aside like people who have like mental conditions. So it's just like regular people that are getting divorced. The people that can't be in the same space for a birthday dinner or that can't be in the same space for Halloween trick-or-treating that are willing to miss each other's times, the only reason why they can't do it is because they're selfish. And that makes people uncomfortable and I don't care because it's the kids that are harmed and the kids did not ask for this. And the other cool thing I do that makes people really uncomfortable is I do this one session called Figuring It Out. And basically... Because I get people all the time that message me because I'm very vocal about everything. And they're like, hey, do you know a good marriage counselor? And I'm like, ha ha, that's like an oxymoron. Um, but 
I actually do. I know a few really good ones. But I say to them, you know, I have a session called Figuring It Out where you and your spouse have to fill out a really uncomfortable, honest form. And then the three of us virtually sit down together and I just lay out your shit on the table. And I ask them questions that nobody wants to answer. And then I give them their three options so they can make a choice that's right for themselves. And whatever the choice is, is going to require work. And so I just, the reason why, and it's called the North Star Divorce, what I, what I help people with. But the reason why my coaching is called In Your Corner is because I picture it like being in a boxing ring when like the person that's in the boxing ring, the coach that's in the ring, they're in the corner. They don't get to fight for you. Mm-hmm. They train you. They give you pointers and guidance about how you're fighting. And they make you get back out there when you can't go. But this is their work. <clears throat> this is their work. So my job is to help people see what their work is. That's great. I, I promise listeners that we will link to Carly's site so that you can check this out uh, through the New Books Network website. And I also encourage you to get a hold of her new book, Seconds and Inches. And I'm very excited about the fact that there's going to be an audio version that you are reading because I think yes. bringing, bringing those voices together, your, your oral voice and your written voice is going to be wonderful. That was literally one of my biggest dreams was getting to record my own audiobook and I loved every second of it and I cannot wait for that to come out. And one more thing I want to share sure. is if anybody because of COVID like again I'm finding the blessings if anyone is in book clubs and wants to use my memoir as a book um for their book club I'm already signed up for a number of them. I'm joining Zoom meetings for Q&As for after they read my book and I'll virtually be at your book club. Um, if you reach out to me and we will do a Q&A about my book if you're interested. So I just wanted to share that. What a great idea. Carly Israel, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Eric, this has been such a pleasure. Hello, my name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Carly Israel, author of Seconds and Inches, here on the New Books Network. Thank you.